The sermon text from today is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1785. Listen as I read God's word. Do everything without grumbling. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act out in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you become blameless and pure children of God, with all fault in a warped and crooked generation, that you will shine among them like the stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in labor or in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink, offering on the sacrifice and servants coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, go ahead and grab one of those pew Bibles. We're going to be pointing out a couple things in the text, so it would be to your benefit to actually have that Bible open in front of you to Philippians 2 uh, this morning. I'm looking forward to getting into this. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here alongside uh, John. This text this morning kind of rocked me. It's one of those ones where you... Uh, you, you start out the week and you think you actually know what the text is about and then you spend a little bit of time looking at it and you're like, oh, it's about way more than this. So I, I, yeah, I'm excited to look at all of this and, and, and unpack this uh, with you. Let's pray and then we will look at Philippians 2. So, Father, we are grateful to even be able to have your word in front of us to read to be able to, to see the depths of your reg, revelation and, and glory in Jesus through it. Lord, as Mike had said when he had came up here to share about the worship night, as it says in Isaiah, your word accomplishes exactly what you desire it to. So Lord, we pray that as we look at it this morning, that by your spirit you might accomplish your purposes in and through us, that you would shape us and help us to look more like Jesus and that you would point us to him, that we would love you more deeply and love those in our sphere of influence more thoroughly. Pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, for those of us who have uh, spent any significant period of time invested in a church family, you know that one of the things that is part and parcel of doing those type of relationships is that there are going to be disagreements from time to time. There are times where we do not always get along on every single issue in this room. I used to sit under a pastor who would say that uh, at some point in the process of doing church community life together, there would be times where we would run over each other's feet once in a while. And what he meant is that if you put enough sinful and broken people in a room together and ask them to actually authentically do life, then there is naturally going to be moments where we clash. 
And add into that the past few years where many of us have, have come to this point where we, we have the feeling of, okay, we are, we're not only facing internal struggles, but sometimes there are external opposition by our culture to some of the things that we hold to as Christian beliefs and values. And very quickly over the past few years, we have seen what we think is a church service become a pressure cooker where you have a bunch of Christians trying to figure out what it looks like to do life together in a way that actually reflects the love of Jesus, not only to one another, but to the world around them. Today, we're uh, continuing this journey through this book of Philippians, where Paul is encouraging this church community that is in one of Rome's most prominent cities to do life together. And he's telling them to press into Jesus amidst certain outside pressures that they're facing and internal pressures. And there's even some, some personal issues going on where you have Paul writing to them from prison and they're worried about how he's doing. And so they're sending him different things in order to help support him in his missionary journey, even while he is confined. And if you read through the whole book of Philippians from beginning to end multiple times, one of the issues internally that it becomes really clear uh, that this church is dealing with is, is one of disunity. Now, it's not exactly clear whether this is between just a few individuals. It is certainly that. We see that Paul will advocate for two women in the church later in this letter, or if it is more widespread. But either way, Paul is not about this, this disunity. And so what he does is he tries to kind of redirect this church away from the things that is causing them to disagree with one another and towards Jesus and his finished work. Because he's trying to tell them something. He's trying to tell them that they do not exist just for themselves. And so that's kind of the big point I want us to land on. If you're going to take something away this morning, this is what I would like us to see, that we are called to be unified in Jesus for the purpose of God's mission. This is what Paul is going to emphasize all throughout this portion of the text, that we're called to be unified in Jesus for the purpose of God's mission. So let's get into it a little bit. The first thing that I want to point out for us, the first thing I'd like you to observe is simply one word right in the beginning of verse 12, and it is the word, therefore. If you've had any training in, in biblical studies, one of the cliche lines that you often hear is when you see that word, therefore, you have to ask what it's therefore, right? And while that is a, a little bit cliche, I think that it is really apt for the passage that we're going to be looking at because Paul, in what he's saying in our passage this morning, is assuming that his readers have already encountered something in the text. And what he has assumed that they have already encountered is verses 5 through 11. So I think if we're going to get into their shoes, I think we have to have that in our head. So I wouldn't usually do this, but I want to read what's called the Christ hymn to us. Again, this is a very early hymn that the church had been reciting to one another even before this letter was penned, and he assumes that they're kind of meditating on this so that they can apply it in the passage we're looking at today. So just listen as I read 5 through 11 again, and just consider how this might inform our passage today. So he tells them, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So here's the mindset. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And then Paul says, therefore, okay? Now Paul is going to tell them what he's going to tell them. He's making it clear that they cannot simply be content that Jesus saved them, as they read in those verses, but he's telling them that they are called to respond in a certain way. Jesus demands a response of them just as he does of us. So here's the response as he starts to say it. He says, my dear friends, as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So here's what he says. He says that we are to work out our own salvation because God is working in us. Now, as I say that, I, I can see the, the theological gears turning in many of your heads, asking certain questions like, what does it mean to work out our own salvation? Aren't we saved by grace and through faith? For those of us who have grown up in, in the Protestant evangelical tradition, some of us have a little bit of an aversion to the idea of working out or, or this idea of works. Maybe the question in your head is, okay, why does it say I'm working out my salvation? And then verse 13 says, God is working out my salvation. Who is actually at work here? And this list could probably go on and on. We can ask a, an enormous amount of questions of this text. But I think that when we read the Bible, One of the things that we need to do is be abundantly cautious in considering if a text is trying to answer the questions that we're asking it. And if the text is not trying to answer the question that we're asking, then we need to make sure we're not deriving that answer from from something that's different than what was intended. Because those questions that we have of this are good questions. We should absolutely ask them. But I, I think Paul's point is to sort something else out for us this morning. And, and I don't think that even in texts where he does answer some of those questions we have, they usually fit into the categories uh, that make us the most comfortable. So what is Paul doing? I think that he's trying to make clear to them that for those of them who are in Christ, for those of them who have turned to Jesus, their salvation is a sure thing, but it is still incomplete. He's telling them that their salvation is a sure thing, but still incomplete. And that might sound strange for some of us as we say, wasn't I saved by Jesus when I trusted in him, right? And I want to affirm that and say yes and amen. But I think practically, when we think about our salvation, the fact that our salvation is still incomplete is actually common sense when we think about our lives. Because I don't think there's any Christian in this room that would say that they are sinless, Nor do I think there's anyone that would say that they are no longer inhabiting a body that is prone to death or decay. Or that every time they encounter another human being, they perfectly represent God as an image bearer, as an ambassador of his kingdom. And yet these things are the fullness of what the scripture says await those who have trusted in Christ. So if that's not the case, that those things always are a part of our life, characterize who we are, then certainly we have not reached the end of our salvation. We have not reached glory yet. There is still more that God is doing in and through us. So Paul's trying to make the point to them that they are called to participate in what God had already begun. They're called to participate in what God had already begun. Now, let me make very clear, I am not saying that there is anything that you need to do 
in the sense of earning your standing of righteousness before God. All of that is sealed on the day that you trusted in Christ. But I think what Paul is telling us that while the work's finished by Jesus, we're still in the process of living into that salvation that was finished back then. So as we read this and we say, okay, Paul, who is working this out? God or me? His answer is yes. But who is it, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. No, no, you're not answering my question. Who is it, Paul? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You're both working it out. And to talk in this way is weird for us. Like I said, our categories usually kind of get screwed up when Paul talks like this, but it's actually not that strange for him. He does this all over certain letters that he writes. One of them that we're probably most familiar with is from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? But sometimes we leave off verse 10 where he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works that no one can boast. So he says, okay, you're saved by grace through faith on the day that you've trusted in Jesus. It is no work of your own. And then he goes on to tell us to do some kind of work for we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, okay? So he's calling us to participate in what God has already begun. Now, as I say that, that's a lot of theology to sort through. There's some philosophy to be, to be sorted out when it comes to, okay, where does God's sovereignty and my free will fit into that? But like I said, I don't think Paul is trying to sort through that for us this morning. I think what he's trying to make clear is that on one hand, we cannot take credit for our salvation ever. And on the other hand, we can't be passive about our salvation ever. Okay, so we can, we can neither be arrogant because we didn't accomplish it, Jesus did, but we cannot be nonchalant about it and fade off in the sunset simply because we trusted in Jesus those years ago. He is telling us to strive and to press on forward into what Jesus has done. We see that although we can rest in the fact that God loves us and that he accepts us because of Jesus, not because of our works, and there is nothing that can separate us from this love, despite the ways that we all, myself included, fall short, we're still called to do something. He expects us to act in response to this. And as we take steps of obedience to Christ, what he says is that we can rest assured that it's him that is doing the work in us on the deepest level. Notice that it doesn't say he's just influencing our our actions. It says, for God is working in you to will and to act. He is changing our hearts. He is changing our desires, which is what ends up expressing itself in God-honoring actions. And this wasn't in my notes, but I I think this is just worth noting. I think sometimes as we, we seek to live into the salvation that God has called us to, sometimes we do it hoping, with this thing in the back of our mind, hoping that God will Uh, approve of us, that he will love us at the end of it, that he will care for us if we have done enough. We know that we are saved, but we hope to stand before him and get his approval. But look what it says, that God is doing all of this for his good purpose. The Greek word is eudikia, according to his goodwill. It shows up in the book of Ephesians again. What What it's telling us is that God delights in doing this in you. Because you have trusted in Christ, you are already approved before him. He already delights in this, and he loves doing this. He loves seeing you come to look more like Jesus in your day-to-day lives. So we don't do this out of fear. We do this in reverence for God. Well, it does say fear and charming. We'll say it like this. We don't do this 
in order to hope that God will approve of us. We do it because he has approved of us. And we do it because he delights in his spirit working to sanctify us and make us a holy people. But if this is true, then I suppose it begs the question, okay, what does it look like then to work out our salvation? What does it look like to step into this work that God has done in us? How do we work it out? And I think that's a good question. And I'd be really interested to, to have this actually happen, this experiment, because I imagine if, if I gave everyone in this room a piece of paper, okay, and I, I asked you to write down a list of all of the ways that you would imagine are the appropriate ways to work out your salvation, I think that I'd probably get a lot of answers that involve things like uh, certain spiritual disciplines that are commonplace for us. So I read scripture, right? I submit my life to the authority of God's word. I pray regularly. I have a healthy relationship of, of talking to and listening to what God has for me. Maybe I fast or I go out and I, I serve the poor. And I think that those are all good. And I think that those are all right answers. But what's so interesting is that as God's spirit is leading Paul to write this letter here, that's not what the spirit highlights as the main way that they express what it means to work out their salvation. What does he highlight? Look at verses 14 to 17. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And he finishes by saying, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So notice, when we ask the question of, okay, how do we work out our salvation? I think many of us, myself included, if I was just to come up with this, would come up with a list of like to-dos, things that I might want to check off, things that might characterize what it looks like for me to live into this. But that's not the direction that Paul goes under the inspiration of the Spirit. He gives us a way that we are called to do everything, right? He doesn't say read your Bible without grumbling or arguing, or pray without grumbling or arguing, or fast without grumbling or arguing. He says do everything, so in response to what does it look like to work out our salvation, Paul responds not with a what, but, but with a how we are called to do it. And what's most striking, this is where I got rocked this week. This is where I realized that the text is about something completely different than what I thought it was about. What's most striking here is that our salvation, according to Paul, is not most aptly demonstrated in a personal posture, but in a community response. It's something that they are called to do together. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children, okay? You don't live into salvation as children solo. You don't usually grumble and argue solo. Paul is speaking to something that they are called to do together. So what we see is the point is that they are commanded to press into their salvation together, unified, and grounded in God's word, that's his point, that our salvation is expressed in the context of community. Now, that doesn't mean it's only expressed there. I just want to say that. We are certainly saved as individuals by Christ, but we are saved into a community. 
that is the community where God's spirit is very present and doing his work in and through us. Paul highlights this very clearly, and I think he highlights it for an important reason that comes through in in some of the specific language he uses as he addresses them there. So this is the part where I want you to look at your Bibles because it's very, it's kind of tedious what he's saying, but it makes a very, very clear point. So there's two words that I want us to be pointed to here. Let's see, grumbling or arguing, okay? Everyone sees that in your Bibles? The words grumbling and arguing is the first phrase I want you to hold on to. The second phrase I want you to look at is warped and crooked generation, okay? Grumbling and arguing, warped and crooked generation. Keep those phrases in your mind. Let's look at the Old Testament. Exodus 16, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community, what did they do? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, lest you think that's the only place where that that word corresponds, just go read Exodus and Numbers where Israel is like part and parcel grumbling every second of of every day of their life in the wilderness, okay? So that's the first one, grumbling. Second, from Deuteronomy 32.5, this is where uh, Moses is talking to the same wilderness generation before uh, the next generation is gonna go into the promised land. Here's what he says. They're corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation, okay? So you've got grumbling, warped and crooked. Do you see what he's doing? He's riffing off of the Old Testament as he's talking about them here, and he's trying to make a point. He's comparing this church to the wilderness generation in one sense. And Israel, let's go back for a second. Israel was a nation that was saved by God, just like this church community is, and they were called to something very specific. They were called to be blessed to what? To be a blessing. They were blessed to be a blessing. So as we think about that, what is Paul doing in using this language with regard to the church in Philippi? Because this is a church that is many years removed from these wilderness wanderings. And I think here's what he's saying. I think he's telling them that their ability to live into their salvation together, to work out their salvation as a community, is intimately tied to their ability to live into the mission that God has always had for his people, that they would be blessed to be a blessing. If you read your Bible and sometimes the language of of chosen and election comes up, and ordinarily we like to think of that language as revolving around salvation. And I would venture to say in some degree it does, but it is not devoid of vocation. God's people are saved to live into a role and a mission. And Paul is telling them that if they are unified, that they will do that best. If they can avoid Israel's mistakes then it's not them who will be the warped and crooked generation, but they will set themselves apart from the broken generation around them. And this is really, really, really important because Paul is making it abundantly clear that our salvation is not just about us. It is not just about us experiencing eternal life with God. And it is not just about us experiencing the fullness of life in that community here together. It is about those things, but it is also about us demonstrating our salvation in a way that hopefully leads us to stand out from the world. And as we stand out from the world, people take interest. And as people take interest, we preach the gospel and they come to see the goodness of God. 
And as they come to see the goodness of God, they come into a saving relationship with Christ himself. Just think about Paul's heart here coming through, not just for this church, but for the statement that this church is called to make to those around them. And I don't want us to miss the, the, the significance of this for us, because despite the fact that this is many years removed from what we're facing, their circumstances are really, really, really similar to what we are facing. Just think about from what, what do we know about the church in Philippi, even so far from the sermon series. We know that there are relational tensions among them because Paul feels compelled to tell them to be of one mind and to be unified. And he will do it again and again through this letter. We know that suffering and persecution is at least part of their experience because Paul had earlier told them that their suffering is a gift along with their faith in Jesus that they might identify him. Not to mention that they're simply in Philippi, which is not a really friendly place to Christians. And then on top of that, they've got their friend Paul who's in prison and he's undergoing his own struggles. There's all kinds of stuff going on with him. He's, he's worried about this church. So let's summarize that. What's going on with them? They all don't agree on everything. Their culture doesn't really like them and they've got their own individual personal issues going on on top of that. I mean, that doesn't get much more similar to any church in any context in any cultural moment that is genuinely trying to do life together. And this church here, just like us, they're wrestling through what it means to live faithfully for Jesus in a world that largely rejects him and as a result isn't real friendly to them as they try and get along despite all of the differences that they have. And there are real differences, aren't there, that we face together. And Paul looks at all of this and here's what he says, that they are called to be unified and faithful to the gospel because it's not in the good times that the gospel is going to come through. It's in this type of cultural climate, in this type of relational moment between them and the world around them that the gospel actually comes through the clearest. You see, when, when everyone's getting along in the world, not that anyone actually ever really gets along in the world, well, for, for the sake of argument, if everyone got along in the world, it would be far easier for the beauty and distinctions of the church to go overlooked. But Paul sees that when the nations rage and, and when the culture looks like it has gone off the deep end and the church refuses to take part, but we stay united, we demonstrate an abundance of life that speaks volumes to those around us, to those that we want to see come to know Jesus. And, and, and it speaks volumes about the supernatural work because there's nothing in this world that can unify people like Jesus can. So here's the thing. If we want people to ask us why we're different, if we want to actually get in real gospel conversations, if we want people to, to ask us why, why we have this hope in us, if we want to live into what Peter says, where we're actually having to give a reason for that hope that is in us, then we need to take the difficult circumstances that we face both internally and externally, and we need to look at them as opportunities to point to Jesus with even greater zeal. We need to view them as opportunities to come together. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't mourn. It doesn't mean we don't mourn our, our circumstances. It doesn't, uh, doesn't mean that we don't wish things were, were different in some sense. And it doesn't actually mean there aren't real issues to divide over. I think that there are real gospel issues where division is appropriate as we seek to cling to Jesus. But assuming that this, there, there is no gospel issue being divided over, it means that when we look around us as a church, when we look at the world around us and we see what's going on and we refuse to participate in that rage, 
we must remember that it's, it's through weathering that adversity well that we actually participate in the mission. When we think of evangelism, often we think of, you know, kind of going individually to share the gospel with those that we have built relationships with. And that is right. But Paul seems to have a category for evangelism that involves us banning together as its own form of speaking the gospel to those around us. That is how we demonstrate what it means to be a saved people. That is how we live into what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So as we close this morning, I just want to reiterate something. I just want to reiterate what we started with here. Because there's a lot of things that I feel like I, I said that we need to do. We need to band together. We need to hold fast to the scriptures. We need to step into what God has, has called us to do. But, but Paul's conception, and I think rightly so, right, is, is that this is ultimately a work of God and his people carried along by his spirit that is a response to what Jesus did first. It is always what Jesus did first. And when we look upon God taking on flesh in him, when we look upon Jesus just pouring out his life for us, and we think about his resurrection, we realize that we're looking upon the one who offers us forgiveness. That we're looking upon the one that, that, that is able to bring our salvation to completion by his spirit. But we're also looking upon the only one who can truly, actually unify us. He is the one upon which we lay down our lives. He is the, upon, uh, the one upon which we were able to demonstrate humility because he demonstrated humility first. And in response to that, then we can go out without fear, no matter what's going on around us as we call others to faith and repentance. But Jesus is where it all starts. So as we move to take communion, this is one of the, the clearest ways that we come together, where we demonstrate what it means to be unified and actually work out our salvation but, but here's something that I, I just want to note. This is, this is really, really important. This idea of unity, I know I've been harping on it. I know I've used the word unity probably like 60 times in the sermon. But here's the thing. Paul understands clearly that our unity is not just about our personal preferences. And he understands clearly that our unity is not just about avoiding conflict with those in our church family. He realizes that our unity has eternal consequences for those that we love. Our unity is about others coming to know Jesus. He's clear that it's not about us, our salvation and unity. It is about those around us. And as we obey God in this, as we step into this well with fear and trembling, as we step into his plans and purposes for us as God's family, we're reminded that this is all because Christ was obedient to the point of death, right? This is what informs this entire passage today. He was obedient to the point of death so that we might become God's children. We are brought in by his work for us. So as we move to a time of confession, every week we, we have a moment of silence where we confess and then we have a prayer of confession together. I just wanna give you a couple questions uh, to process. You can pick one of these maybe and think on it and write the other one down. But I think they're worth considering as we think about how are we called to respond to this text. The first one is uh, asking this question here. As you work out your salvation, do you lean towards being too active or too passive? Now that's a weird question. Like I said, this idea of working out, where I, I know that there's some like uncomfortability. There's some discomfort with me here, just asking this question, but I think that's Paul's point. And so to be faithful to the text, we have to ask this. Are we too active or are we too passive? Because we're all on a continuum, right, with this. We wanna be uh, well-balanced, but I think many of us, myself included, are, are not as balanced as we could be. And we either lean uh, too much toward being overly laid back when it comes to our pursuit of God, 
and we're, we're asking Jesus to drag us along instead of following him, right? Or we believe that the lie that we cannot be loved by God if we have not done enough to deserve the love that he has first showed us in Jesus. But the truth of the matter is this, that if we want to have a healthy balance between living into this salvation and resting in Christ's finished work, we have to look at Jesus. We have to keep our eyes set upon Jesus. And I know that's a little bit cliche, but I, I, I think that it's true. Because the more that we look at Jesus and the beauty of his life and his death and his resurrection, the more we realize there's no way I could one-up that. There's nothing that I can do to add to the amazing work of what he has done. And at the same time, as we look at that, then we realize there's no way that I can't respond to this. I have to follow him. I have to lay down my life for him. So if we want to be well-balanced, if you want to have an appropriate balance of active and passive, look to Jesus and realize what he's done for you. Second question is this. As you work out your salvation, uh, what specifically does it look like for you to do that with your church family? Okay, what specifically does it look like for you to work out your salvation with your church family? Paul makes it clear that this is a ride run together, so we, you know, we have to get along and get used to one another. But, but I also think that the bigger point here is that we are oftentimes the means that God uses in order to see each other through to glory, in order to help each other look more like Christ. I've probably said this before, but, but I, I'll say it again, that, that the, some of the most uh, transformative work of God's spirit in my own life has not been through me individually doing something. It has been through thoroughly engaging in relationships and community with other Christians. And I imagine I'm not the only one in this room that has that same experience as well. There are a lot of ways that we can do this. You can do this through mentorships or intentional uh, regular relationships or small groups or classes. There's, There's all kinds of ways that we can do this, but it is enormously important that we do this because we here at Elmwood care about those outside these walls as well. We care about St. Anthony. We care about the surrounding cities, Columbia Heights, Roseville, all of the different areas. We care about seeing people see God's goodness and come to Christ. And according to this text, one of the ways that we do this best is by thoroughly tying our lives together through thick and thin and, being ref- and refusing to divide on things other than the gospel. And as Paul says, we lay our lives down. That's the language he uses at the end, the sacrificial language. His suffering is coming together with their suffering and they're laying it down at the foot of the cross as a sacrifice to, to God himself. So let's take a moment as, as we think about this to just consider the, the depth of what God has done in Christ. To think about the salvation, how great a salvation that he has purchased for us so that we can live into that as we strive to be unified and as we strive to be a witness to those around us as well. So let's take a moment and then we will pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we have done and by the things that we have left undone. Lord, as I look about this text, I am convicted and, and I imagine I'm, I'm not the only one about the ways that uh, I have made uh, petty things bigger issues than they need to be. Lord, we come to you this morning and, and we desire to be united and, and unified in you and yet we realize the temptation is real. When we look at the culture around us, when we look at the media around us, 
when, when we look at, at the experiences of even other church communities around us, and we see that the temptation is real to divide over things other than Jesus. Lord, we don't want to be those people. We want to work out our salvation well with fear and trembling, knowing that one of the main ways that we do that is by, by sticking together, realizing that you have made us a family in your Messiah. Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, help us by your spirit. Empower us by your spirit to have supernatural unity. Help us to hold fast to you. And in so doing, grow in love for those around us. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us amend what we are? And would you direct what we shall be so that we would delight in your will and walk in your ways, all to the glory of your name. I pray all of this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.